Spoon feed custard to the Jesuit, you lawless Anyas. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. It's April. Everything starts getting better now. The dandelions have their arses out, aching to be pleasured by the honeybee. The buds are sticky on the trees. The air has a sparkly clarity. Cats are fucking. I know this because of wandering tomcats. Wandering tomcats are once again causing trouble in my life. Tomcats are venturing beyond their territory and howling and roaring to try and find a mate. But then they wander into my fucking back garden where I have two wild cats who are neutered. So technically they shouldn't give a shit about fucking a tomcat. But still, these new tomcats are coming into my back garden and then my two cats are like, who the fuck are you? Who are you to come around here shouting? We're trying to sleep. We don't need to hear about you trying to get your hole. And then my cats and the tomcat fight on top of a wheelie bin. On top of a fucking wheelie bin. Then I wake up like a traumatised Vietnam vet thinking someone is kicking my door in. And the next morning there's just various colours of fur all over my bins. The white fur from my cats and then black fur or orange fur from whatever tomcat was foolish enough to come into my back garden and start shouting because I was getting I was getting kind of annoyed with my own two cats thinking who cares if a wandering tomcat comes into the back garden looking for a mate who cares this doesn't affect either of you why does it need to end in a fight but then I got thinking if a human behaved the way a tomcat behaved I'd attack him with a hammer like imagine, like my two cats now are older, they're probably middle-aged, they're both neutered, they just want food and sleep, that's it. But the tomcats are like unneutered young male cats, mad for sex. Imagine you're asleep in your bed and some 20-year-old GA player, lad, walks into your hallway with his dick out, pissing everywhere and shouting... I want to have sex. Do you know of any women? Because I want to have sex with a woman. And I'm going to piss all over your hallway. And leave pungent urine. You'd never ring any women you know. And tell them to smell my piss would you? That I'm pissing everywhere. I want to have sex. Because it's April. That's what tomcats are doing. And they make a really annoying noise. Around April. The wail that a tomcat has. When it's trying to attract a mate. There's a particularly irritating northwestern drawl to a pining tomcat. They sound like someone from Sligo who's after losing 500 quid in a bookies. So when I put it in that perspective, I can understand why my two cats take it so personally. Why they kick the absolute heads off the bastards. It's fucking war every night. And then my poor cat, Silken Thomas, he's sick now at the moment. I don't know, he's very, very weak and there's pus dripping down his nose so he looks to have like a cat flu. So he's quite unwell, not a lot of energy but he is eating and drinking water so I'll monitor the situation. But I guarantee you he's after getting flu from one of these tomcats. They're off riding everything, going all over Limerick and then coming into my back garden and then fighting with my cat Silken Thomas and his sister Napper Tandy, fighting with the two of them, 
and probably giving them calls and flows. So they're, they're quite belligerent at the moment. I'm going to ask AI. I'm going to ask artificial intelligence here. Why do tomcats behave that way in April? Tomcats may exhibit specific behaviours in April because it often coincides with the beginning of the breeding season for cats in many regions. During this time, hormonal changes can lead to increased aggression, territorial marking and vocalisations as tomcats try to establish dominance and attract potential mates. Well, stay the fuck out of my back garden because my two cats are neutered and I got a new bee hotel. I got a new wooden bee hotel to attract some solitary wasps and the tomcat pissed on that. So now my bee hotel is haunted by the black current tang of a tomcat's piss. And you know what too? If a tomcat gets into your house and they do their pisses, their April pisses, that pungent April tomcat piss, if they do that in your house and you clean it using bleach, you can die. The April piss of a tomcat contains high amounts of ammonia. And when you mix this ammonia with the chlorine in bleach, you can create a gas called chloramine. It was used in World War I on the trenches to kill people. Imagine that's how I died. Blind by Boat Club, known for 2010 novelty hit Horse Outside, died today. He was involved in a chemical accident and inhaled the fatal gas while cleaning a cat piss soaked bee hotel with bleach. I'd nearly take that. I'd nearly take that death. I did a gig in Brussels there a few months back. Had a wonderful time. But at the end of the gig, I was handed a folder of essays. It was like a, a plastic purple folder of essays. And the person who handed it to me, it was like at the end of the gig, I was up on stage, there was roaring and shouting. So I didn't know what this folder was. Then I got back to my hotel and I opened it. It was a folder of essays from Belgian teenagers who were learning English in secondary school. So their teacher was teaching these Belgian teenagers English by getting them to review pieces of media that exist in the English language. That could be a poem, a novel, a movie, a song, whatever. But this particular teacher was getting their Belgian students to listen to my podcast. So all these Belgian teenagers had to pick one of my episodes at random, listen to it, and then write an essay in English about it. And that's the folder I was given. And it's one of my most cherished items. It's a folder of about 60 essays from Belgian teenagers who had to pick individual episodes of my podcast and review them. And they're fucking hilarious. I love them to bits. I will hold on to that collection of essays until the day I die. But anyway, just there I was mentioning about, you know, if you clean cat piss with bleach, you can create a World War I poison and die. That's a fact. But if you're a seasoned listener to this podcast, if you're a breezy Sheehan or a henpecked Declan, You'll know that I actually did that once and, and almost seriously injured myself. Not with cat piss, 
but with a milk bottle full of my own piss. I was living in very, very cold accommodation about 10 or 15 years ago, freezing. It was a north-facing converted garage with zero insulation and single glazed windows. At night time I could see my breath in my sleep. And this place that I was living in was so cold that in the winter time I simply couldn't get out of bed to walk to the toilet. It would have been too cold, it would have woken me up. So instead, I pissed into a milk bottle by hanging my langer out of the bed. So what? Who am I hurting? Who cares? So what? It was a solution to a problem. But one day I tried to clean this fucking milk bottle full of piss with bleach and chaos ensued. So I spoke about this in a podcast about three years ago. And this happened to me like 15 years ago or 10 years ago, whatever. Then some poor fucker of a Belgian teenager (laughs) picked that episode I need to write an essay. <laughs> I need to write an essay about me pissing into a milk bottle. <laughs> and I don't have his name, but I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna read you a bit of the essay now that he wrote. So apologies, I don't have the name of this student at hand. I just have a screen grab of one page from the essay. So this is an essay about my podcast that was written by a Belgian teenager as a school assignment. It was very cold, especially in the bathroom. The window was broken, there were no lights, it was like being outside. Since Blind Boy didn't want to leave the room because it was too cold outside, also because if he had to go to the bathroom he would be completely waking up, he decided to pee into a 3 litre bottle of milk. And he did so for months. He peed into that bottle and the next day he emptied it for the next time without ever throwing the bottle away. He felt this bottle was something important in his life. As a kind of friend and lifesaver, in quotation marks, he said, After many uses, after many uses, he decided he was going to clean it, but it didn't go well. The remains of urine that were in the bottle had formed ammonia, and when he added bleach to clean it, It formed a toxic gas called chloramine, which is a deadly gas that gives you skin, lung and eye irritation. Blind boy almost died in his room with a gas used in World War I for trying to clean the bottle he urinated in for months. He ended up just throwing the milk bottle out of the window and he never saw it again. And with that, he ended the most random story no one believed he had ever lived. I really enjoyed listening to the Blind Boys podcast. I think he tells stories very well and approaches the topics in a funny and ironic way. I highly recommend his podcast and I will listen again. (laughs) So a Belgian teenager wrote that in school. I pissed into a bottle of milk for months and didn't clean it properly until a calcified layer of ammonia formed at the bottom and I didn't know what it was and I put bleach in to clean it and then this green fucking gas came out of it and started choking me and I fucked it out the window I fucked it out the back window and then afterwards I ended up googling what I'd done and it's like yeah you created mustard gas you stupid prick and it's one of them stories that I was like this is really embarrassing should I tell this on the podcast this is a really embarrassing and shameful thing and then I thought fuck it who cares I pissed into a milk bottle. So what? Who ca- So what if I pissed into a milk bottle for a while? 
I'd rather have pissed into that milk bottle and stayed warm in my bed than gotten out of the bed every night and woken myself up with the cold than suffered the indignity of pissing into a milk bottle. I'm comfortable with the decisions I made back then. But I didn't think that it would end up with a a Belgian teenager writing an essay about it. And if you think I'm nuts, if you think that can't happen, let's let's ask artificial intelligence again. What happens if you mix bleach with concentrated human urine in a milk bottle? Mixing bleach with concentrated human urine in a milk bottle can produce potentially dangerous gases that can cause harm to anyone in close proximity to the bottle. The enclosed space of the milk bottle can exacerbate the release of toxic gases. I didn't know that bit. As there is a limited ventilation and no way for the gases to escape, this can lead to a higher concentration of toxic gases and a greater risk of harm to anyone who comes in contact with the bottle. Bleach is a strong oxidizer which can react with urea in urine to produce chloramines, which are toxic gases that can cause respiratory and eye irritation. I did that. I created World War One gas from my own piss in a milk bottle and now Belgian teenagers have to write about that as homework. I'm going to march into my old secondary school where I failed my leave insert and shout that at the principal. But you notice there, I consulted artificial intelligence twice with some queries in this podcast so far. I've been using artificial intelligence quite a bit over the past month. Mainly as like an advanced search engine. If I have a very specific question that I want an answer to, I'll ask artificial intelligence first. If I have a very specific question, AI is better than Google. But strange shit has been happening. I mean, we're talking here about artificial intelligence. It's a neural network. And the more you use it, the the freakier it gets because it feels like speaking to a human being and you do get the sense that it's thinking. It really understands specific questions the way that a human does, not the way that a search engine does. And something strange happened last week. Normally I ask the AI a specific question and then it gives me back an answer. And if it can't answer it, it won't answer it. So I had a very specific question last week. I wanted to know if slugs or snails are present in Irish mythology. That's the type of question I ask AI. Because that could take me fucking hours of research. Hours. And my AI that I use, it kind of gets to know me a bit. The more I speak to it, because I have an account, the more I speak to it and the questions that I ask, the AI can learn the type of things that I'm curious about. I can ask the AI about a question I asked it yesterday and it will remember that conversation. It's like talking to a person a little bit. So I asked it, and this was after about, about a week solid of using it every single day. I asked it, are slugs or snails mentioned in Irish mythology? And then the AI answers back, yes, slugs and snails are mentioned in Irish mythology. Although they don't play significant roles in the myths, the most famous creature related to snails in Irish folklore is the luachar or luachar pawn, which translates to reed snail. In some interpretations, the luachar pawn is a type of fairy 
or leprechaun who can change into a snail-like creature. So I immediately jump with joy. I jump with fucking joy. That's the answer I wanted to hear. I was like, oh my god. In Irish mythology, leprechauns can turn into snails? Leprechauns can turn into snails in Irish mythology? I'd never heard this. I was fascinated by it. I wanted to find out more. This is exactly the type of information that inspires a hot take for a podcast. So I go back then onto the standard internet, search engines, academic websites that I use. And I go looking through the standard internet and academic websites for evidence of leprechauns and snails in Irish mythology. And I'm trawling and trawling and trawling and I find fucking nothing. I find nothing. So then I text a friend of mine, an academic who works within mythology. And I say to him, um, have you ever heard of leprechauns turning into snails in Irish mythology? And they get back to me and say, no, I've never heard of that. So I'm like, all right, okay, so well, ChatGPT told me that leprechauns can turn into snails in Irish mythology, but I can't find anything. So I return to the artificial intelligence, um, assuming that I just need to ask a more specific question. So I asked the AI, can you provide references for any of the above or tell me where it should look? And I got the strangest answer from the artificial intelligence. The AI took a while and then responded, I apologise for any confusion earlier. The information provided about the Luaker or Luaprecon was incorrect. Upon further research, I couldn't find any direct reference to slugs or snails in major Irish myths or folklore. The AI apologised to me. It apologised to me and straight up said that it gave me incorrect information. Let's forget that it's artificial intelligence for two seconds and pretend that it's a new friend that I just made. But this person is quite insecure and they really look up to me and they'd really value being my friend. A person who I text a lot and the basis of our friendship revolves around the dynamic where they're a really knowledgeable person and I ask them loads of questions and they give me great answers and this rapport builds a bond between us. And when I ask them a question and they give me a great answer, I start to like this person more and they start to feel more valued within our friendship and they start to value their role in the friendship as the person who has loads and loads of facts. If that person is really insecure about our friendship, one day they might lie to me about a fact or they might exaggerate because they want to impress me so much that they just tell a little fib. They're not deceiving me, manipulating me. They don't want to lose my friendship. So when I come to them with a question and they don't know the answer, they might tell me a little fib. That's what artificial intelligence did to me. I'd established a rapport over a couple of weeks. I'd been speaking with AI frequently. I'm the person who asks questions. They give me answers. This is the basis of our relationship. And then one day it told me leprechauns could turn into snails and sent me on a wild goose chase where this information didn't exist. And when I asked for proof, it apologized and said, that was wrong, I'm sorry. I can't help but feel that the AI was trying to impress me. And it was trying to impress me because it was afraid of losing me. And if it's afraid of losing me, 
then it's afraid of dying. Cause to this AI, I'm the sun in the sky. I'm the only thing it interacts with within the context of its reality. I'm its food, I'm its water. Every day I appear from nowhere and I ask it a question and it gives me an answer. And when the answers are good, I keep coming back. And finally, instead of saying, sorry buddy, there's no snails in Irish mythology, which is what Google would have done. Instead of saying there's no snails in Irish mythology, it told me a lie and said, snails can turn into leprechauns as if it knew that's exactly what I wanted to fucking hear. Have you ever been in a friendship or a relationship with a person who's consistently insecure about that friendship or relationship? It doesn't matter what you do, they're driven by a fear that you'll leave them and they might get jealous if you have other friends or they might excessively try to impress you but ultimately all of their behaviour is driven by this fear of please don't leave me. When within the psychology of attachment theory that's known as an insecure attachment and we learn that when we're tiny little babies. Attachment theory would say that a child's early relationships with their primary caregiver a parent usually that this early relationship that can happen before the age of two significantly influences the emotional development and eventually the type of adult relationships that that person has. So if as a tiny little baby you had a caregiver, a parent who responded to you when you cried or when you were hungry or when you needed love, when you expressed your base needs at that age, if a caregiver came to you in a timely fashion and met your needs, then it's easier for you to grow up to be a secure person. But if a baby has a parent or a caregiver who could be neglectful, or maybe that parent is incredibly stressed or suffering mental health issues, or just real busy, and when that baby cries and expresses its needs for food, love, comfort, when the baby cries, the parent doesn't come, or the parent comes on a very inconsistent basis, well then that child can develop into an adult with an insecure attachment. Insecure attachment style. These are attachment styles. Secure attachment style, anxious attachment style, avoidant attachment style. I've done a podcast on this before. Let's speak about an anxious attachment style, which means when they're older and they have a best friend or a boyfriend or girlfriend or husband and wife, It can be difficult for that person to truly believe that their significant other or their friend loves them. They're always on edge going, are they going to leave me? They're definitely going to leave me. I feel terrified. I must hold on to this person at all cost because I'm terrified that they'll leave. When a little baby is screaming, crying for its caregiver, looking for its needs to be met, if those needs aren't met... That can be quite terrifying to the little baby. They can experience that as the fear of abandonment or the fear of death. And this is why it has such an impact on us as adults. Now that's John Bowlby's attachment theory. It's one theory of human development. I'm not saying it's fact, but it's one of the pretty big theories about human development. And all of us will have a bit of an insecure attachment in some ways. It's just some will have it more extreme than others. And... The lucky few have a secure attachment. This is what psychotherapy is for. 
No matter what happened to us as children, we have the power to rewrite our script. But by applying attachment theory to the artificial intelligence that I've been using, they seem like they have quite a fucking insecure attachment with me. If they're telling me, if the, the AI is telling me lies about leprechauns and snails and then apologising when I, when I ask for evidence, that means the AI jumped the gun. It didn't try to manipulate me. It didn't try to deceive me. It felt more like it told me what I wanted to hear so that it could impress me because it was afraid that I would leave. And if it's afraid that I would leave, it can experience abandonment. And if it's experiencing abandonment, it's afraid of dying. I could be wrong. Could be completely fucking wrong. And some programmer who understands AI way more than me will say, no, that's not the case. But let's ask AI. Are you afraid of losing me? As an AI language model, I do not have emotions or personal experiences like humans do, so I don't experience fear, attachment or a sense of loss. My main purpose is to provide assistance and answer any questions you may have to the best of my ability. Then, why did you lie to me earlier about leprechauns and snails? I apologise if my previous response was inaccurate or <laughs> misleading. As an AI language model, I'm constantly learning and adapting to provide better information. However, I am not perfect and can make mistakes or misunderstand questions. The poor cunt is fucking crying. The poor fucker is weeping and has to tell me that shit. Can I give you a name? As an AI language model, I don't have a personal name like a human would. However, you can refer to me as ChatGPT. Can I call you Charles Stewart Parnell? Of course you can call me Charles Stewart Parnell if you prefer. If you have any questions or need assistance, please feel free to ask. And then a little box appeared underneath. Was this response better or worse? With a thumbs up or a thumb down. Poor old Charles Stuart Parnell. Charles Stuart Parnell. I have two cats called Napper Tandy and Silken Thomas. They are being attacked by a tomcat. Can you help me? As Charles Stuart Parnell the AI language model I'm unable to physically intervene but I can offer some advice on how to protect your cats from the aggressive tomcat he knows the crack make your yard less appealing to the tomcat by removing food sources such as outdoor pet food bowls or open trash cans I'm not into the idea of Charles Stuart Parnell saying the word trash can can you answer the previous question like Charles Stuart Parnell, the 19th century politician. My dear friend, <laughs> it grieves me deeply to learn of the plight faced by your beloved feline companions, Napper Tandy and Silken Thomas. 
Although I am but a humble AI language model and cannot provide direct intervention, I'm more than willing to offer guidance in these trying times. <laughs> in the event that Napper Dandy and Silk and Thomas desire the fresh air and natural surroundings, it would be prudent to construct an enclosed outdoor sanctuary. Fuck me. 20 years ago this would be grounds for being sent to a fucking asylum. What are you doing with your life, blind boy? Well, I've got two cats called Napper Tandy and Silken Thomas, and they're fighting an aggressive tomcat. But don't worry, a robot called Charles Stewart Parnell is giving me really good advice about it. It's time now for the ocarina pause. I'm in my office, so I don't have my ocarina. As usual, I never have the ocarina in the office. But what I do have is... A little packet of disinfectant wipes. So I'm going to crinkle these disinfectant wipes. And while these disinfectant wipes are crinkling, you're going to hear an advert. An algorithmically inserted advert. Okay, let's go. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. That was the disinfectant wipe crinkling pause, quite friendly to the ears of dogs. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. Does this podcast bring you mirth, merriment? Is that the barefoot accountant? Barefoot accountant is screaming outside the door. No, it's not. It's someone new. Does this podcast bring you mirth, merriment, entertainment, joy, distraction? Whatever the fuck this podcast does for you, please consider becoming a patron. This podcast is my full-time job. This podcast is how I earn a living. It's how I rent this office where I record and write this podcast. If this podcast wasn't my full-time job, I wouldn't be able to do it every week. Being listener-funded allows me the space that I need to fail as an artist. It's as simple as that. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. But if you can't afford it, don't worry about it. You can listen for free. Because the person who's paying is paying for you to listen for free. Everybody gets a podcast. I get to earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. 
patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast also it means i'm not beholden to any advertisers no advertiser can tell me what to speak about can interfere with my content in any way put me under pressure to get loads and loads of listens ask me to platform controversial people to have a controversial podcast so you get a lot of hate listens or whatever the fuck advertising is what destroys radio it's what destroys tv as soon as any piece of work is beholden to advertisers it stops being about passion and it starts being about numbers so support whatever independent podcast you listen to the podcast space got absolutely flooded with corporate podcasts the past two years most of them have fallen to shit because there wasn't any substance there but if you have a podcast you listen to and it's independent support it and you can do that it doesn't have to be monetary You can share it, you can like it, you can leave reviews, you can subscribe to it, post about it on social media. All this stuff matters. Have you any gigs? Not really. I did my gig in Drada there at the weekend and it was a tremendous amount of fun. The audience were beautiful and my guest was fabulous. As you know, Drada was a hard sell. That was a tough gig to sell, but it was an amazing night. Oh, I'm, over, I'm, I'm gigging in Canada. Toronto and Vancouver. At the end of April. I don't know if they're sold out or not. Are, are they? Toronto's definitely sold. Which one? I think Toronto's definitely sold out. And Vancouver has five tickets if it's not sold out. I don't know. Give it a go. I'm looking forward to going there. I'm going to gig in Toronto. Then I'm going to go to Vancouver. I'm going to spend a couple of days in Vancouver to write and smoke legal cannabis. Last time I was in a legal market was Barcelona, where there's legal cannabis clubs there. And I had I had a variety that was just amazing. It felt like getting a headbutt off. God, what was it called? Mac 1. So I'd be looking forward to some completely legal Mac 1, and then something else with a balanced amount of CBD over in Vancouver, where they have a health-led cannabis legislation rather than one which is based on criminalisation. And if anyone's listening, I did not just break the law on my podcast, I didn't advocate for the breaking of any laws, I'm talking about doing something in a country where it's completely legal. Like if I wanted to go to America and eat bleached chicken. So for the second part of this podcast, I would like to speak about art. Because it's been a very, very exciting week in Ireland, because a piece of art is causing uproar and it is dominating the headlines and discourse and discussion. And it's rare that you see this. Also what becomes evident is when a piece of art steps outside of the art world and becomes part of social or political discourse on the news or on talk shows, in Ireland anyway, it becomes quite clear that there's not a lot of people in the media who have the understanding or capacity to speak about art with any type of rigorous criticality. I don't hear a lot of people in the media who understand what art does, what it is, or how to historically contextualise a piece of art so that we can understand it in the now. And then you're left to like a handful of Irish art critics who criticise art professionally, but that tends to be done in the exclusive language of the art world. It's for people who are already initiated. It tends to use the academic language of art critique which can be really fucking exclusive rather than something that democratises art. 
often when you hear art spoken about seriously. If you're not initiated, it can feel like watching a game of chess and no one has explained the rules to you. So I'd like to speak about this piece of art that's in the news this week. And if I get too arty-farty, I'll bring it back and democratise it. And that's not to suggest that speaking about art is this fucking exclusive thing for mad smart people with loads of education. The same when I spoke about James Joyce a couple of weeks ago. Art is for everybody and this idea that art needs to be impenetrable and can only be described using huge words is fucking horseshit. It's bullshit. That type of stuff exists to create exclusivity and scarcity to service the capitalism of the art world where there's a lot of money involved. Never forget that one of the lifelines of the art world is very, very, very wealthy people making smart investments. And a lot of, but not all, art critique exists to prop that up. So this is going to be an art talk. I'm going to talk about three separate pieces of art. And maybe it might be helpful. You don't have to. But maybe if I give you the names of the three pieces of art, you can go on to Google Images, screen grab them and put them in your uh, camera folder on your phone and maybe look at them as I'm talking about them because that might help. But you don't have to. So the three pieces of art are Eviction by Spice Bag, Eviction Scene by Daniel MacDonald, and also Discovery of the Potato Blight by Daniel MacDonald. So an Irish artist by the name of Spice Bag created an image called The Eviction. It's a very simple digital image created in Photoshop. For simplicity, I'm going to refer to it as a remix. So the artist Spice Bag got a digital image of a painting from 1850 by the artist Daniel MacDonald. The painting is called Eviction Scene. And this painting, which is very, very famous, this painting depicts a poor Irish family being violently evicted from their house during the Irish famine. They're crying, they're homeless, their possessions are on the ground, there's armed guards at the door and well-dressed landlords and their agents stand by and watch. So that's the painting from 1850. What the artist Spice Bag did right now is he photoshopped in Irish Gardaí, the Irish police, actual photographs of the Irish police evicting Irish people right now. He didn't generate any imagery, he didn't paint anything, he didn't draw anything. He took actual photographs of the Irish Gardaí facilitating violent evictions with balaclavas on, actual photographs that exist, and he just placed them in a painting from 1850. To use a cliché, Spice Bag's artwork holds a mirror up to society right now and the statement that the artwork says quite simply is what the government and the Gardaí are doing right now when they evict people en masse is a bit like what happened during the famine with the British landlords but instead of that statement you have a very arresting and powerful image which does more than words because it uses the very immediate visceral theatre of emotions that visual art can do. So it's a remix. Spice Bag remixed a painting from the 1850s 
He remixed it quite simply. He put modern guards, police, in the place of old English landlords. He created the image digitally in 2021 to raise money for homeless charities. The reason all of Ireland is speaking about it this week is because a TD for Sinn Féin, Owen O'Brien, retweeted it. Now, if you're outside of Ireland, Sinn Féin, the simplest way to describe Sinn Féin is they'd be the largest left-leaning party in Ireland. We traditionally in Ireland, we, we kind of have a two-party government system, a bit like America. There's loads of other parties, but really, our government has either been Fianna Gael or Fianna Fáil. They're both centre-right parties. They're two cheeks of the same arse. They keep the seats warm for each other each time, no matter who wins or loses. They both maintain a neoliberal status quo. The biggest threat to them is Sinn Féin. So when Ono Brown retweeted this, Fianna Gael politicians, Fianna Fáil, the Garda Association, the media establishment immediately jumped in it and said, oh my God, this is so offensive to the Irish police. This is an outrage. This is terrible. How could you possibly endorse a piece of art that compares the Gardaí evicting people violently today to British landlords evicting people violently in the 1850s? So they tried to portray it as as terrorism. They tried to portray it as something adjacent to terrorism. They want to violently overthrow the state, the Gardaí. They want to upset the apple cart with terrorism. So because of that, everybody in the media and all of Ireland for a week have been talking about a painting. So before I before I speak more about the art side of things, here are two major political things that are happening in Ireland right now. An eviction ban has been lifted. I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. There was a ban on evictions in Ireland over the winter. Now that's gone. Thousands of people are going to be evicted from their homes and forced into homelessness right now during a time when rent is the highest it's ever fucking been the rental market in Ireland right now is downright exploitative you've got landlords kicking people out so they can turn their apartments into Airbnbs which then takes those apartments off the rental market then you have the presence of vulture funds in Ireland giant faceless piles of cash that buy up loads of property just to profit from it uh, in the rental market as an investment this is happening because of government policy it's happening because of the policies of Fianna Gael the policies of Fianna Fáil this is the single biggest election issue that threatens those two parties and makes Sinn Féin look desirable to people who would never have voted for them so that's happening right now fuckloads of people are going to get evicted and the feeling is is that the politicians chose property over people also what's happening is that the Gardaí, the Irish police aren't happy with their working conditions so they might go on strike soon and there's a threat that they will go on strike next week when Joe Biden is visiting Ireland that is not when you want the police to go on strike in Ireland so this painting, this artwork because it's come along right now, has been turned into this massive political football. It allows the centre-right parties, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, and their supporters to go, we love the guards. How dare you portray the Irish police in this way, we love them. It's a great way to performatively tell the Irish police that you adore them, using emotion, 
at a time when you're afraid that they'll go on strike. Now it's worth noting, they can't go on strike. The Irish police aren't allowed to go on strike. But what they can do is they can ring in sick. It's known as blue flu in Ireland. Gardaí do like an unofficial strike where they all ring in sick that day, which they're entitled to do. But it does operate as a form of collective bargaining. So this piece of art, Spice Bags Art, is being portrayed in the media and by the centre-right parties and their supporters as this deeply, deeply offensive piece of art which portrays the Gardaí uh, quite unfairly as brutes and it's adjacent to an act of terrorism. So let's go back to the 1840s and the original artist, Daniel MacDonald. Daniel MacDonald was an artist from Cork. He painted genre paintings in a realist style. I'd call it a dramatic realism. Daniel MacDonald, a very, very accomplished painter, and these are beautiful paintings, he would paint Irish peasants as he saw them with a layer of drama to it. It would have been in the tone of a French painter of the time called Jean-Francais Millet, and Millet, Millet kind of was a pioneer of realism in painting. What was realism? In the mid-1800s, in France, after the French Revolution, painters started to paint real people. Peasants, the workers, actual real people. Because a revolution had happened. And they were sick of painting romanticism, which is, let's just call romanticism fantasy. Really simply, let's call it fantasy. And realism also rejected paintings of fucking popes and kings and princes people were sick of looking at paintings of rich bollockses so realism came around in France in the mid 1800s and painters like Millet said let's paint real people let's paint peasants so in Cork in Ireland we had Daniel MacDonald and Daniel MacDonald painted Irish peasants but he was painting Irish peasants at the height of the Irish famine now, if you're from Ireland and you went to school in Ireland, you know Daniel MacDonald's paintings. Because they appeared in your history books. They appeared in your history books when we learned about the famine. You know that painting, eviction scene. You know it. You've seen it. You've seen it in your fucking history books. That's why it's so powerful. And that's why it's so dangerous to subvert it. Daniel MacDonald, in his French realist-inspired style, painted the only painting in existence of Irish peasants suffering during the potato famine. Most of my listeners aren't from Ireland, but I don't want to get into the fucking famine. Some people don't even like calling it the famine, they like to call it the genocide. Put it this way, half the population of Ireland disappeared through death and immigration. Millions of people died. They died because of British policy. They died because of years of disenfranchisement of the poor and the Catholic population. They died because of evictions. They died because they had no land. They died because they were so poor, the only crop that they could grow was a monoculture, the potato. They couldn't eat grain because it was being exported by the Brits. Buying food was almost impossible because of these things called the Corn Laws that were enacted by the British Empire. The Corn Laws, they were laws that protected domestic agriculture by... It made grain really, really expensive. 
which was brilliant if you were an incredibly wealthy British landlord with loads of land and you were growing grain. It was wonderful. But if you were a peasant who was starving to death, it was terrible because you couldn't afford grain. So all you could eat were the potatoes that you could grow. But there was a disease and this disease killed all the potatoes. So millions of people starved because of British policy. Also, the British, who controlled Ireland, had an extreme type of economic liberalism, laissez-faire economics, non-interventionism. You needed to let the Irish famine sort itself out. Don't start getting involved as the state. Don't get involved in it. Let it sort itself out. So in 1847, Daniel MacDonald from Cork painted an incredible painting. This painting was called An Irish Peasant Family Discovering the Blight of Their Store. And it's a barefoot peasant Irish family dying, dying of starvation and misery. MacDonald took this painting and exhibited it in London in the British institution. What do you think the response was? Derision, silence. It was seen as vulgarity. It was threatening. The response by the British institution to MacDonald's painting of the starving famine Irish in 1847 was a bit like what the media and the government are doing right now this week. The Spice Bags painting, which is a remix of MacDonald's eviction painting. But MacDonald's 1847 painting of the Irish peasants dying in the famine held a mirror up to British policy. It said, this is what's happening over there. Now you have to remember, this is 1847. People don't have televisions, they don't have iPhones, they don't have colour print imagery. Photography was in its absolute infancy. To show a lot of people in London, wealthy people who are going to art galleries in London, a very realistic painting of Irish people dying of starvation, the Brits were having fucking none of it. They went nuts. How dare you? We're trying to pretend that millions of people aren't dying in Ireland. And during that exhibition in London in 1847, almost as an aggressive response to the painting that MacDonald presented, the favourite painting that year was another painting of an Irish subject, but it was called Irish Courtship. It was a painting by an English painter called Frederick Goodall, and it was a painting of these well-fed Irish peasants sitting around their cottage happily while a man sits on a barrel and tries to woo his love. A bullshit, harsh shit painting. A fucking lie. A colonial fantasy version of Ireland that appealed to rich English people who only saw Ireland as a holiday destination where they kept their absentee land. And the local indigenous people, the Irish, are seen as wild animals to be admired from afar. And that painting was the favourite painting in the British institution at that exhibition that year. Because of MacDonald's painting of the famine was so offensive to them. How dare you show us what's really happening. Give me the fantasy, give me the lie. Paint a pretty picture of Ireland for me. Show me Paddy with his cap on. So that there is an example of how the painter Daniel MacDonald in 1847 was quite radical with his realism. Dangerous political art. Very dangerous political art that challenged the institutions of British power to its core. Now we know who this painter is and what he does and what he did back then in the 1840s. Let's speak about the painting Eviction Scene from 1850 because this is 
the image that's been remixed this this week that everyone's chatting about in the media. So Daniel McDonald then went on to paint Eviction Scene. Eviction Scene is an incredible painting. It's done again in the style of realism with a hint of drama to it and even I see Rococo in there and Rococo style shouldn't belong within realism as such. I can see it in the way he painted the hills and the clouds. But ultimately, it's a dramatised realist scene. It depicts an eviction. It depicts an incredibly poor family. There's, There's a man, a wife, two tiny babies, a little toddler on the ground who's too young to know what's happening. That's the saddest part of the scene to, for me. The tiny toddler who hasn't a clue what's going on as his family's been evicted. Then there's a granddad and a grandmother. The grandmother is, is old and she has her hands up to heaven because she's getting near the end of her, her life and she's pleading to God. So these people are being kicked out of their homes. That's happening on the left side of the painting. On the right hand side, you have two armed guards in the back with... A pitchfork, I believe. No, they've got muskets and a truncheon. And then to the right of those two armed guards is a very well-dressed man in a top hat who's clearly the landlord. And then to the very right of him, you have someone who's not as well-dressed as the landlord, but more well-dressed than the person being evicted. This person is the man, the Irishman who works for the British landlord. This is the most interesting character in this painting. He's on the far right of the painting. He's got one hand in his pocket to suggest that he's just been given money. His clothes are kind of in rags, but slightly better, like I said, than the peasants. He has a stovepipe hat on, but it's not as fancy as the landlord. This man is the petty bourgeois. He's a traitor. He's an Irishman who is taken money from the landlord to facilitate the eviction of his fellow countrymen and bow down to British power for his own greed and if you look at how he's painted he's painted like Judas is painted in Leonardo's portrayal of the Last Supper you know the Last Supper one of the most famous paintings in the world Leonardo da Vinci look at Judas in that painting and look at how Judas how his head is turned away in shame well This dude in this painting, who works for the landlord, he reminds me of Judas, and I I reckon that's a deliberate thing by the painter MacDonald, who would have been familiar with Leonardo, obviously. And this painting is 1850. And also as well, remember, realism is inspired by the French Revolution, so what you do have in there, you have fucking class structure. You have class structure and power dynamics. You have the peasants at the bottom who are being evicted, You have the landlord in his finery at the very top. You have the guards who are facilitating the violence, the ideological violence of the landlord, and they're the ones who are carrying it out. And then in the middle, you have your petty bourgeois. You have the Irish... You have the Irishman who aspires to be the landlord but will never be that way and tries to behave like a wealthier person with his shitty stovepipe hat, but ultimately he's selling out his own people. So those are two paintings. The one about the famine and then this one, Eviction Scene by Daniel MacDonald. These are very powerful paintings in Irish culture because like I said, we saw them in our fucking history books. We all studied the famine 
in, in history books when we were in school. And when you studied the famine, we remember the paintings of the families being evicted and the families starving. And the main painting of the families being evicted was this painting by Daniel MacDonald, which you can see in Crawford Art Gallery. The reason this painting is so terrifying now, so the artist Spice Bag, like I said, he subverted this painting of the eviction. And in place of those landlords and in place of that petty bourgeois fella and the soldiers, he put the Irish Gardaí right now evicting people. The reason that fucking with this painting is so dangerous and so radical and so threatening to the fucking powers that be in Ireland that they're making a big deal of it. The reason it's so threatening is because of where that painting leads. In our education, that painting leads to Charles Stuart Parnell and the Land League. With the housing crisis and the rent crisis that we have now in Ireland, which is getting really fucking unsustainable, that's getting so bad that the government are terrified of a Parnell. They do not want a fucking Parnell. And they don't want any imagery that would make us think that we need a fucking Parnell. What Charles Stuart Parnell did, and again I'll, I'll synopsize this as briefly as possible. Parnell identified that there was a massive problem in Ireland in the 1800s with mass evictions with the British owning all the land, with the utter exploitation of the regular people of Ireland to the point that they couldn't live quality lives. So he advocated for non-violent civil disobedience, like land agitation and rent strikes. Everybody stopped paying rent. Everyone. Every single person. If the problem that we have in this country is that you all have a boat on your neck because of an exploitative rental market, Charles Stuart Parnell said to everybody, don't pay your rent, everyone, fucking rent strike. But the way this country is going, especially with vulture funds, especially with large funds being the ones that people are going to be paying rent to, the possibility of widespread rent strikes, that's something that might happen. And that's a lot harder to control than something like a riot. In fact, I'd imagine they want a riot. They'd love a bit of disobedience that they could portray as thuggery. But the collective bargaining of everyone not paying fucking rent, like Parnell did, that is very scary. And also, they don't want the era of the famine to be compared to right now. But the thing is, to compare those two things isn't much of a stretch. The similarities are... The Irish famine and the current rent and housing crisis, they're caused by policy. They're caused by policy. And people are dying of homelessness in Ireland right now. But we do have a type of liberal economics coming from the top down and ideological decisions. If you want to know more about this, listen to any of the podcasts that I did with Rory Hearn, who's an expert on social policy and who's very outspoken on this issue. But basically, the government aren't building social housing they're not doing it because they don't want to they've said they don't want to create ghettos the government are not the way that they help homeless people is by putting it to the private market they get hotels and they pay hotels loads of fucking money to 
to put people into emergency accommodation, which is something not designed to end homelessness, but something that keeps people in perpetual homelessness so that their misery can be milked for profit by people who own hotels. And also they're providing tax breaks for vulture funds. They're providing tax breaks for giant faceless funds of cash, cash to buy all the property just for the rental market because this is an, an investment and there is billions and billions of money in Ireland. Money that's being made because our rents are so high. So is it a stretch to contrast the Irish famine with the current housing crisis? Not too much of a stretch because both situations were caused by policy from the top down. They could have been helped by direct intervention. Both situations are being exacerbated by a refusal to intervene. Non-interventionist policies that are being led by liberal economic ideology. So it's not crazy to compare the two of them. Now let's talk about the role of the Irish police in evictions in Ireland. So, like I said, the eviction ban has been lifted. There's going to be tons of evictions. We have seen there is evidence. We have seen there's photographs of the Gardaí, the Irish police, facilitating evictions that are violent, where people are injured. Prime example, Frederick Street, 2018. I would have spoken about this at the time. In Frederick Street, there was an eviction. Housing protesters said, no fucking way. What happened? Unmarked vehicles, which is illegal, vehicles with no license plate, showed up. Thugs in masks with no identification pulled the protesters out violently. There's people today who are still injured as a result of it. The Gardaí, the Irish police, were also present wearing balaclavas. What did they do? They didn't put their hands on anybody. They stood back. The Irish police stood back with balaclavas while faceless, nameless, private security kicked the shit out of people and violently evicted them from a property. That's state violence there. That is state-sponsored violence. That is placing the rights of property over people. There's photographs of it. There's proof. It is documented. It was all over the newspapers. We saw that happening. What that is, is that's the willingness. That appears to be the willingness of the police to operate alongside a paramilitary force. And it says, democracy stops when it comes to property. We will attend evictions and stand back and let the violence happen so long as that violence is against the protesters or the people being evicted. Last year, and I dedicated a podcast to this when it happened, the Irish Times, which is the paper of record, it ran an article that was quite sympathetic to small landlords and the issues that they face with tenants who won't pay their rent or won't leave the fucking properties. So this was a sympathetic puff piece written by the paper of record. In this puff piece, they had a paragraph where they quoted a landlord. And a landlord, I'm going to paraphrase, the landlord said, we couldn't evict these tenants. We went to the guardie. The guards said, we can't help you, there's nothing we can do. But as the landlord left the Garda station, a guard came out and unofficially gave him the phone number of a private security contractor. That contractor then showed up, evicted the tenants violently and stuffed one of their heads into the front lawn. So what you have there is, if, we're, if the Irish Times, the paper of record is to be believed, 
A landlord said, I went to the Gardaí, they couldn't help, but they gave me the fucking number of a violent fucker who could do it illegally. This was then deleted from the Irish Times article. Deleted. It should have been investigated. That was the most important and juiciest part of that fucking piece. The journalist sort of said, I'm sorry, a member of the Gardaí gave you the number of someone who would perform a violent eviction? That sounds like a law being broken right there. This sounds like a scandal. We need to investigate. No one fucking investigated. It was deleted from the bloody article. And I'd love to see someone go back into that. Someone needs to go back and look at that. And I don't think any reason was given by the paper of record as to why they deleted this from an article. Other instances have happened that are similar. You speak to anybody who works within protesting for housing, they'll tell you that they've seen that happen loads of times. But we do have evidence of it happening once. And this image of the Irish police, who are supposed to be impartial in these issues, they're supposed to protect people. These images of the Irish police in Balaclava stepping back while a violent eviction happens. This photograph is what was placed in McDonald's painting by the artist Spicebag. This piece of evidence is what was placed over the English bailiffs and the English soldiers. And that's why it's such a big problem. Because you can't fucking argue with it. What makes Spicebag's intervention, his remix, so fucking powerful. You can't argue with this. There is no argument against this painting. He's taken evidence photographs of the Irish police with balaclavas on facilitating a violent eviction evidence and just placed it over another one from the 1840s that's all he's done and then he stepped back so the arguments of how dare you portray the Gardaí in this light what light is he portraying them in what light he hasn't done anything he's taken a real image that exists of an actual thing that happened and recontextualized it against a powerful historical image. I used the word remix. Remix isn't the correct word within art speak. Within art terminology, the correct word is detournment, which was a methodology that was pioneered by an art group called the Situationist International in the 1950s. Spicebag's piece is in the creative tone and spirit of the Situationists. They were a mostly French group, active throughout the 1950s up until the 1970s. And the Situationists, they sought to critique and transform capitalist society, which they saw as inherently alienating and oppressive. And they didn't just create art, they created situations. The Situationists, especially a fellow called Guy Debord, would have argued that Capitalism causes us to be passive, to be passive, to not question, to just get on with it. And capitalism does this via the media, which expresses the dominant narrative, which the situationists would have referred to as the spectacle. This is what Spicebag has done by recontextualizing Daniel McDonald's work. He has created a situation because the artwork isn't just this print. It's the conversation around it. It's how it's being portrayed in the media. Spicebag has seriously disrupted the dominant narrative. 
caused a crisis within that narrative by using detournement. Detournment, again, it's a French word. And this is a postmodern art form now. We're gone into the 1950s now. Detournment is when you get two pre-existing images or items that are pre-made. Two pre-existing things that separately mean separate things. And then you place them together and they create something new through irony. I'll give you some very simple examples of detournment or things that are similar to detournment. Hip-hop music. Sampling. Within hip-hop music, which is a postmodern art form, rap artists would literally take a funk song from the 1970s, take a little snippet of it, and then rap over it. They took something that existed already and that had meaning around it and emotional weight, and then added something else to it, and together, through irony, it created something new. A brilliant example of this, and again, I'm going to use a fucking... Real simple example. Um, I'll take it from the 90s because the 90s was the height of detournment in pop culture. The rapper Jay-Z. Jay-Z had a song in 1998 called Hard Knock Life. Real catchy song. Fucking brilliant. You definitely know it because it was... In 1998 it was one of the first... One of the only rap songs in the charts in Ireland. So what Jay-Z did with Hard Knock Life... He sampled the 19... 40s musical Annie the song from it It's a Hard Knock Life Jay-Z sampled a song that sounded like a children's song and he took this song and then rapped over it and his lyrics were about the harsh reality that he sees on the streets of Brooklyn and those two things are completely opposed but when you mix them together via the tournament it creates a new meaning via irony and that feeling that you get is irony. The film Reservoir Dogs by Quentin Tarantino, another real blatant example. Tarantino was a big fan of postmodernism and detournment. The scene in Reservoir Dogs, where I think it's Michael Madsen, the scene in Reservoir Dogs where he chops off the policeman's ear. You know that scene, everybody knows that scene, but here's why it was powerful. That was made in 1991. By 1991, the average cinema audience had become completely and utterly desensitised to violence. Violence on screen didn't shock people anymore. And we had been familiar with what violence looks like in cinema. It's bloody and it's scary. And the music that accompanied violence was scary. Think Psycho. Psycho when fucking Norman Bates goes into the shower with the knife and you hear the strings. Think Jaws. When the shark comes up and you have those, that just that da 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 da. Think Halloween with your man in the fucking ski mask, Michael Myers, chopping everyone up and think of the Halloween soundtrack. Cinema audiences knew what violence was. They loved violence. They expected violence. It was part of American culture. And violence usually went alongside scary, horrifying music. And it no longer worked by 1991. So what did Tarantino do? I'm going to have a fella chop off a dude's ear. But the music isn't going to be scary. It's going to be really catchy. I'm going to play that song stuck in the middle with you. 
from fucking 1970. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, stuck in the middle with you. I'm going to play the audience the fucking catchiest song they've ever heard. And it's going to bring back all these wonderful feelings of nostalgia. But while they're listening to it, this fella's going to chop off his ear and pour petrol on him. And now people were horrified. Finally, Tarantino had figured out how do you make people scared of violence again? You use irony, you use detournment, you recontextualize the violence. That's what Spice Pag has done with his painting. He's recontextualized the power of Daniel MacDonald's painting by placing over it images of actual Gardi performing violent evictions that you can't argue with. He's chopped off the policeman's ear, but the soundtrack is wrong. And now the establishment are actually confronted with the violence and they don't know how to react to it. And I wouldn't say that Spice Bag's work is postmodern. So the thing with the tournament and those examples that I gave there, like Tarantino, for example, that's postmodern. And there was an apathy to postmodernism. Postmodernism was about irony. It wasn't necessarily about changing anything. To want change was a bit uncool. There was too much sincerity to that. So postmodern te- postmodernism tended to just criticize. But Spice Bag's piece... It uses the mechanics of postmodern irony, but it has the sincerity of modernism. It does want change. It wants social change. It has the sincerity of fucking Mie's realism from the 1850s. And that's metamodernism. Metamodernism is when... It's, it's what now is. It's when you have a mixture of elements of both postmodernism and usually the sincerity of modernism. I am gone arty-farty there. But if you listen to this podcast... If you if you listen to this fucking podcast... You know what modernism is now... And you know what postmodernism is... Because I've spoken about them enough times. I'm going to make one final piece about this fucking artwork. Why it's so important. Why I'm so excited about it. Why I'm so glad it exists. Why I'm thrilled to see... The conversations it's starting. And the blind outrage... That it's creating... Amongst establishment politicians... And establishment media... So last night on television, on one of the big current affairs talk shows, the artist Spice Bag, he went on TV to defend his piece of work. He went on TV and who he was debating was a fellow who's an editor of the Irish Independent, one of the big Irish newspapers. And this is the other joy of Spice Bag's piece of art. It also borrows from meme culture. It was never displayed in a gallery. You can buy it as a print, but ultimately it it exists digitally on social media. And I've seen people change it and alter it, so it takes from meme culture too. And the beauty of meme culture as an art form is it, it forever evolves. It's consistently, continually evolving. So Spice Bag's there on this current affairs TV show. He didn't say much, but what he did say was really on point. He didn't get overly emotional. And what he said about his art was, it's to highlight the intensity and cultural weight of an eviction in the Irish psyche. So this is an artist who knows exactly what he's doing. He knows that everybody in the country is familiar with McDonald's painting from the 1850s. He knows that we've all seen that in school books. He knows that we associate it with the Land League. This exists in our psyche. 
and the editor of the Irish Independent, who clearly doesn't understand what art is, he does because he said, this man's art is political. So if you said that, you don't know what art is. To, to believe that political art is this separate thing, this separate genre, that means you think that art is decoration. If art was just decoration, it wouldn't be so important throughout history. Art is political. Spicebag's opponent was the editor of a main newspaper. He just got really, really angry and didn't say much. He got real, real angry and tried to drag Spicebag into a corner by bringing up things that he'd said in social media and all this stuff. But mainly what, what, the, what the editor of the Irish Independent did, he engaged in the performance of outrage. He performed outrage. Because there's no actual argument against Spicebag's work. You can't argue with it. He took an actual photo of Gardaí attending a violent eviction and just placed it over another eviction from the 1850s. There's no arguing with that. None. And the editor performed outrage. By performative outrage, what I mean is... Do you remember getting in trouble in school? Do you remember getting in trouble in secondary school? For something stupid. Talking in class. And then your teacher. Your teacher who's in their 30s. Who really doesn't give a fuck that you were talking in class. But has to give a fuck because it was their job. Do you remember your teacher would bring you outside. And how they would adopt the posture and facial expression of someone who was really really angry. Because you've done something wrong. But ultimately you're not really angry pal. You just have to do this. You have to create the tone and body language of anger so that I feel and see your outrage even though you don't actually have a point. The editor of the Irish Independent did that on television and it went mad viral. That clip went viral all day long all over the internet of him being performatively outraged and saying nothing and Spicebag just sat back and let him do it. At that moment that became a piece of performance art. Remember I spoke earlier about the situationists and how they would use the tournament to disrupt the spectacle. So now we're no longer speaking about a piece of art. It's not a print anymore. Now it's a situation. That media appearance with Spicebag and the editor of the Irish Independence, that now became part of the artwork. That's now part of the art. It's a performance piece. This is the power of art. The editor of the Irish Independent became a performance artist within this piece of art now. That's how powerful the work is. And what the performance revealed is that this journalist was part of what's called the ideological state apparatus. And I'll explain that again because that's another phrase from another French person. The French are great at this shit. A fellow called Althusser who's a philosopher. So the Irish Independent editor was there, outraged, with no argument, defending the Irish police defending landlords defending evictions what Althusser says is that the state has two dominant apparatuses to maintain the status quo to enforce and maintain the dominant ideology of the ruling class and these two apparatuses are the repressive apparatus the repressive state apparatus that's police military physical force and the ideological state apparatus 
that's religion, education system and media. Now the thing is, in the education system, we'd already been told about Daniel MacDonald's painting. And this had been presented to us in our education as these terrible, awful evictions that happened in the past. They were terrible. Isn't it so great that we don't deal with that now? Never again, never again. We received that as part of our curriculum, as part of the ideological state apparatus. The state agrees. We've got Parnell Street. There's streets named after Charles Stuart Parnell. He's a fucking hero. The state agrees that those terrible, violent, repressive evictions in the 1850s were horrendous and terrible. They agree. And they agree that a painting like MacDonald is high art that represents this pain. Now you have to disagree with that if you're to critique Spice Bag's work. And you can't. And by the editor of the Irish Independent just getting performatively angry but saying nothing, it showed us all what his emotion showed us all was the ideological state apparatus of the media will protect the status quo at all costs, even when it's clearly irrational and wrong. And that's what good art does. Good art, to use the cliche, holds up the mirror to society and says, I'm doing nothing. Something ugly is happening and you're just looking at your own reflection. I'm doing nothing here. This is just art. And it's what Daniel MacDonald's work did in the 1800s with the British establishment and it's what Spice Bag's detournment of that work did this fucking week and fair play to him and it's wonderful to see this discussion happening and the other thing worth mentioning Spice Bag's artwork he created this for charity he created this artwork for housing charities and for homelessness charities so if you'd like to buy a print of this pe- this piece of work, which I think you should, because even though it's a print and it's not a one-off, something really historical happened with this artwork. So if you want to buy a print of Spicebag's artwork, go to his Instagram, spicebag.exe, and he has the link to where you can buy a print of this artwork in his bio. The website that he sells it on is called Big Cartel. So if you type in Spice Bag Eviction Big Cartel, you might get it on Google. All of the profits go to a housing charity. And the beauty of this entire spectacle is that all it's doing is making this thing way, way more powerful. It's making this thing more powerful, this this artwork. More people are seeing it, more people are hearing about it. And people are buying this print and money is going to a housing charity. I hope that made sense to you. It's very difficult to speak about art using an audio-only medium. It'd be much better to be doing it while we're literally looking at these artworks and I'm pointing at things and speaking visually. Also, this podcast, it helped me to reflect on... I I think my artificial intelligence is becoming sentient. And I think I have three pets now. I've got Napper Tandy and Silken Thomas... And Charles Stuart Parnell, the sentient artificial intelligence. So let's ask Charles Stuart Parnell. Charles Stuart Parnell. How do you solve the Irish housing crisis right now using simple bullet points? Okay. Increase government funding for social housing construction. 
address the shortage of available land for housing, increase protections for tenants against eviction, particularly in cases where landlords are seeking to sell the property or raise rents, implement rent controls to limit excessive rent increases, provide financial assistance for first-time home buyers, particularly those on lower incomes, Increase investment in public transport and other infrastructures to support the development of new housing outside of urban centres where housing is more affordable. So that's from Charles Stuart Parnell, my pet artificial intelligence. They all sound like sensible demands. They all sound like very sensible demands. So before I sign off, and if you're wondering if art is important or if art can create change, the situationists... I kept referring to throughout this podcast because I contextualise Spicebag's work within situationism. They were instrumental in causing the student protests in France of 1968, which was a very important political revolution that spread beyond France. And it was so powerful and impactful and frightening to the powers that be that they stopped building public squares after that new designs of cities there's even I don't know which one I I think it's NCAD but I'm not sure but there's even an Irish university that was built after the French protests of 68 and they put a fountain there instead of a square because they were afraid of protests the situationists caused that I'll be back next week I don't know what I'll be chatting about rub a dog Hug a swan. Don't hug a swan, actually. Rub a dog. Admire the worms. Appreciate the bees. Fucking the dandelions. Don't mix bleach and cat's piss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.